chant the reflections on universal well-being. May I abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and may I maintain well-being in myself. May everyone abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and maintain well-being in themselves. May all beings be released from all suffering, and may they not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. When they act upon intention, all beings are the owners of their action and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action, and its results will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the heirs. Give a few uh, remarks on anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and uh, I've kind of alluded to this a lot in the retreat, but hasn't felt we really all of us are in the place or the space to make use of it, because in a way you have to wait until it comes to you, the breathing. Mm. If you're in a lot of pain or difficulty or struggling, it can be a bit, and your attitude towards it tends to want to try to get it, and, and then you, it's the wrong way of approaching it. Mm. So I don't found it very useful to approach it that way. So when uh, there is a sense of bodily balance, and uh, you Posture that is uh, stable, comfortable, bright. So there isn't a lot of pressure and stress going on. Just in terms of holding the body. Then it's the, just to take a little bit of the time. The first thing is, and it's often to do this repeatedly, is um, so sato asasati, so sato pasasati. So mindful, one breathes in, mindful, one breathes out. So we're bearing the breathing in mind. Remember, it's the breathing 
and not the breath. So it's the whole feeling process, the experience of breathing. Bearing it in mind. First of all, we just bear it in mind as an idea. Breathing. Happens all the time, doesn't it? And then, so one way is useful is just to how do you know you're breathing? Rather than just as an idea, how do you directly know you're breathing? What tells you you're breathing? Particular sense of pressure, shifting, tightening in your abdomen, flushing in your nose, something happening in your chest. What tells you? How do you know you're breathing? What are the signs of it? Are you sure you're breathing? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just like, do you get anything there? If you don't get anything there, then maybe you are dead. Or maybe you're just, uh, you know, you're not ready for it yet. Or it's... Is something else, but it's a good question to keep asking. Is they, are you breathing? How do you know you're breathing? Because you probably are. And you maybe just get something like a pressure if you've got a belt on or something around your waist, a sense of pushing there. Oh yeah, that's it. Happens repeatedly, doesn't it? One, so you check. That's the. It's a repeated sensation comes up. You get the sense of what what is repeated because it's that in out in out in out repetition of breathing it's a, a repeated set of sensations or something of that nature happening in your body that seem to you about breathing you might feel a oh yeah there's also a general swelling sense. And then maybe a tightening in the abdomen or lifting in the chest. Certain, perhaps even a certain, it's like push in the solar plexus of something pushing there. Might feel a kind of something rubbing inside the nose. So maybe that's that's that. And so bearing it in mind, means you, however modest it may seem to be, that little bit, you bear that in mind. You stay with that. That's your sign. And the process of staying with it, mindful, means we're not pushing to make more of it, trying to get good at it, or anything like that. We just... So you, all that letting go of those particular attitudes and energies. So you, by the, the simplification of your mental behavior, so we're looking to again the sense of just meeting something, which is a simplification. And if there's something that's as modest as just the swelling in your belly. You want to you feel it. And putting aside some of the trying to get it, trying to get it right, hoping you can stay with it, trying to develop or whatever, 
yeah. Settling onto it, settling onto it. Noticing maybe the settling occurs when you breathe out. Something in your mind maybe relaxes a little more when you breathe out. So perhaps there's a little bit more settling when you breathe out, or the out-breath. When you breathe in, perhaps it's... um, Certain, you know, you can you can manage a bit of that, but perhaps at the end of the out breath, you, your mind drifts off because there's nothing much there, it fades out. So you're wandering, then you feel a bit oh, should be breathing. At that point, when your mind wanders off, as it will do, you notice that experience of the mind rushing off or drifting off or scampering off somewhere else. There's a moment when you when you notice that you know, oh, minds instead of just being in that script, you're recognizing the script. Oh, here we go. Da, 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 da. Ah, At that point you pause. As soon as you recognize, you pause, pause. Pausing is just is just checking the mental or psychological impulse to get tight, nervous, criticize, make more of it. Just stop, pause, and listen. Do you know you're breathing? You kind of just put that question in. This is Vitaka, put the question. You know, you've been off somewhere on the other side of the cosmos, playing games or whatever we do in those lovely moments, those moments. And then, oh, oh, oops, should be breathing. Oops, pause, stop, relax. Then just introduce the question. Do you know, are you breathing? How do you know you're breathing? Wait till you get a sensation tells you that. Then you come back to that. This happens a lot. Maybe every time that we come back, we find the bit that we come back on, the bit that's easiest for us to land on. So you notice that's that's the easiest landing place. It could be sensation in your nose, it could be a swelling in your chest, it could be something happening in your in your abdomen. You notice the place where it's easiest to pick it up. Oh, so you learnt something. This is the easiest place. You're trying to stay there, stay with that, and get a little more quality around that place. How do you? Is the sensation warm or tight or slippery or pressurized? Anything more you can feel about that? Feel your way into that particular experience when your mind, your breathing, your body come together. And deepen, deepen into that a little.
deeper you go or the more comfortably you settle less agitation the more comfortably you settle you might find that your, your your mind stays a little bit longer with the breathing because it picks up subtler subtler, subtler pieces of that the quieter sensations perhaps even something about an energy like a feeling of yeah breathing in is different from breathing out because breathing in is a kind of relaxing quality and breathing out breathing in is a sort of brightening quality you pick up the energy of that every time you land back again onto the breathing perhaps you can find a more satisfactory way to feel comfortable with that land on it deepen into it evaluate it pick up more and more that's going on with that mind skips off as your mind skips off if you've had a little bit more time resting on the breathing when your mind skips off you notice the energy of that the restless jump or the panicky or the hungry seeking something interesting you feel that so you learn a little bit more about the mind then you just Feel, wake up to that, notice that oh, this is craving or hunger or restless agitation perhaps you don't even need to name it you just feel the energy of that then pausing yeah what about the breathing now? so in a way we look at the whole picture of it it's not just about staying with the breath but how being a little more patient and finding more, more ability to deepen into a, a little passage of the breathing you also understand more about the mind the energies that are there for you you also understand a very valuable thing which is about the ability to pause not make more of something just check, pause, stop, wait, open up, and then return. Pause, return. Pause, return. That's perhaps the uh, big lesson. Rather than pause, complain. Pause, get worried. Pause, get frustrated. <laughs> Just pause. Wait. Till you feel like it, and then... Where's the breathing? Now... How could it be become more comfortable for you? So your mind more readily rests into it.
vichara, this uh, aspect of uh, handling. You might, uh, sometimes that helps. Vitaka is just the pointing at, but if you just keep pointing, you get a bit bored, tired. So vichara is, you could say it's describing, helps with describing. So when you get, when you land on the breathing, when you feel it, how would you describe that? A word, three words, picture. So say the feeling of it, or is it hard, soft, slow, quick, tingly, rigid? How is it? So it doesn't matter what it is, but just engaging the mind to the degree in which it it kind of handles and explores and feels into the breathing process as you as you experience it, wherever you experience it how it's happening for you. So you're giving the mind a little bit to play with so it doesn't have to play elsewhere.
And if it works or if it seems to line up, it will line up in accordance with the uh, change in your mental behavior. This is why it's so helpful, because we have to get more patient, more simple, relax the emotional agitation or pressures, get a bit sharper and clearer into and more agile in knowing what we're experiencing. As you point to it and you really get a feeling for it, so the mental behavior, instead of just skimming on across the surface and thinking, goes into perceived percepts, which is felt impressions such as rubbery, warm, brushing, flow, you name it. Yeah. And all that is part of it, all that perception and the feeling and the active attention, they're all aspects of hologram, so all aspects of that hologram of experience. You kind of if it's not quite right, then maybe you're not getting the perception. Or your mental activity is you're not checking it, you're not pausing on it, it's going too fast, too hurried. Or you're not listening deeply enough. Hmm? Or maybe your body's posture isn't quite comfortable yet. So there's a lot of different bits and pieces in a hologram, (coughs) a whole sphere of experience. Hmm? You learn quite a bit in finding the balance. Leave that there for a moment, and uh, a few moments pause, and I'll just survey some of the questions and see if I can um, sort of bundle them together, so we're not tracking over the same ground twice.
So a few, some technical questions. There's one that's just a request to do the chanting in Pali, which is, uh, we'll look at that, but that's kind of more like a request than a question. Um, and we have some that are of a slightly technical nature. And some are more like guidance, you might say. So here we go. Equanimity or numbness? Dispassion or repression? How do you tell the difference? Equanimity or numbness? Dispassion or repression? How do you tell the difference? Well, it's quite crucial to know the difference. Um, So remember all these words are translations of experiences that we have. Equanimity, the experience of being uh, tuned in, I'd say tuned in, if that makes sense to you, you're you're listening, you're attentive, you are aware of the feeling that's happening, you know the feeling that's happening, pleasant or unpleasant, and you're with that and you're not reacting to it, you're open to it, you're sensing the movement, that feeling, but there's no volitional activity, in other words you're not moving away from it, you're not moving into it, you're not explaining it, you're not analysing it, you're not blaming it, you're not worrying about it, it's just, mm. And you're fully fully aware and alert to the quality of that feeling. And equanimity in this sense isn't so much a feeling, although naturally there is a kind of calm feeling to it, it's, it's a quality of chetana or intention. The chetana means that that movement we have of the mind when it inclines in, or gets active, it speeds up, you know, or the cogs get in the wheel. So, oh, oh you know, reminds me of this, or I'm going to go for that. Or So um, often there's this pretty normal to have quite a lot of volitional flutter going on. As you experience something, we're kind of, oh, you know, reverberating with it and, and, and feeling engaged with it and disappointed by it and so forth. But there's this kind of a lot of movement going on when you experience particularly strong feel of strong emotional push a lot of uh, flutter around it well equanimity is no flutter it's just mm, there it is <laughs> numbness you don't feel things <laughs> so you're not with the feeling uh, there's a there's a, a deadness a, a, uh, like the, there's no alertness there's no proper full attention there's no sympathetic um, chord primal sympathy isn't there so primal sympathy again is this uh, uh, you know it's just that since when when you get something when something you say something touches you you get a kind of a certain you know uh, realization or recognition you know? so you get it oh the, the, the getting it is a certain sympathy with that so uh, for example we see uh, you know you see something on the ground and it's this funny thing and, oh, funny thing 
and then you notice it's a, you know, it's a dog with a broken. And you sit and look at the dog, oh, dog, dog with broken leg, and ah, what was just the shape, which you weren't really clear about, has become a sentient being, and there's some, oh, you know, in which we we move into all kinds of various um, responses may come from that. The first thing is just sort of like a recognition on a heart level. That's the best way I can put it. Numbness is just, you're not, you don't get that. You, you, it's closed down or it's blocked. And it's something that occurs for a number of reasons. You know, one is it, the system is so overloaded you just don't want to know anymore so it shuts down. You numb out. Yeah. Mm, that's the basic, basic thing. Yeah. There's a withdrawal or closure of that that fundamental sympathy. Dangerous. Um, say you know, for example, soldiers in conflict, you, you, you rev up the system with so much fear and tension that they, that the, the sympathy numbs out, and then you can go out and kill people. You don't, you don't see the other person and get that sense of oh. It's another person. It's just the, the system is just so flooded with, uh, um, you know, panic or urgency or the battle fever that you're able to do that, and the system is flooded with all that all that stuff. So you don't get the primal sympathy. It's overloaded. And this, of course, is very damaging for the other person who's getting shot. Of course, but it's very damaging for the the system in that you, you've actually done something quite radical to to your your ethical balance, your primal sympathy, your nervous system, you flood it with these aggression hormones and then uh, you get what they call you know, post-traumatic stress or fatigue, battle fatigue. People get shell shock when they just go mad or can't behave properly anymore. Um, other than that, we get a certain numbing effect uh, just being when it's very crowded situation so much coming at you so much stuff that your mind basically starts to shut down because you can't sympathize with everything that's going on there's too much happening you know so, so it's, it's busy it's crowded there's a lot of uh, panic going on or or emergencies and it's just too much stuff to feel sympathy for so it, it just shuts it down shuts it down um that's bad news but um, it's, it's what can happen in a, in, a, in, a, in a living creature in these states of extreme danger or overwhelm. In order to feel all of that crazy panic and flooding, to not feel it, the system shuts down. Then you don't feel anything. And then hopefully when, the, when that thing's over, then you come out of it and you're, oh, where was I? And you come back again. But uh, but <laughs> this is what happens for animals. You know, they come out and they shake themselves around. They come out of it. And humans sometimes they go into that, and there isn't a time when they come out of it. <laughs> you know, you you you, you the, the, because the next thing happens, and the next thing happens, and the next thing happens, and the next thing happens, or they just about come out of it, and something else happens. So after a while, the system feels well, it's just better to stay numb all the time because uh, then you don't have to feel all this. So this is a, 
I can be low, you know, it doesn't have to be as powerfully traumatic as, as uh, military behavior, but it can be, uh, you know, still, still damaging. And this is the kind of low-grade um, numbing out damaging that uh, many people find themselves experiencing through, through deep stress, stressful situations. Because the result of that, at that time, you're, you're kind of protected from the intensity of the feeling, but then it, it traumatizes, the system traumatizes, and you get psychological disorders because you can't feel things. And when you can't feel things, you don't quite know where you are anymore. You're not in relationship with anything because you can't feel it. Yeah, it's just like you know, if one is if one is visually impaired, blind, or deaf, then you can't see. And that's bad, bad enough. When you can't feel, you don't know, you don't pr- sympathize. You haven't got a felt sense of what's around you. You haven't got a felt sense of yourself anymore. <laughs> you know, so you become like meaningless. You haven't got anything to to orient around. So this stressing and stressing and stressing is a, a, a hazardous experience. And you know, as you, I suppose, we all are aware of that to degrees. You know, and how important it is not to just keep following all those messages of should and ought to. Uh, it's co- if it's causing this damage to your system. Dispassion or repression. Dispassion, viraga, is the Buddhist word for it. Repression, my understanding of this means um, that something that is experienced is too difficult or too something. You don't want to feel it. or You don't want to, be, you don't want to notice that. You don't want to have to fully be aware of that. So you, you push it away, you shut it down, and you close the door, and you, you even don't even acknowledge you've done that. You know, it was too difficult. So it's a very traumatic experience. For example, you've been violated, uh, and then you don't even want to go back to that horrible memory. So it's closed off, and you can even forget that it happened, or something in you forgets what it happened. Um, there's another word, suppression. Which suppression means you're aware of something that's very. You're about to blow your top or something. So you just hold it, stop. <laughs> but you know you haven't repressed it, and you're aware of what you're doing. And you're, perhaps that might be the best thing to do at the moment. So you hold that energy down. Yeah, but it hasn't gone to the point of traumatizing, where, where you've you've kind of almost gone into a denial or closing the door that the experience happened in the first place. You know you are angry. You check that behavior, and you go away, and you kind of work it out, ideally. That's suppression. Dispassion is neither of these. Dispassion is is the next step on from viveka. So viveka, I've mentioned, is this sense of disengagement, a skillful disengagement. It's not a denial. It's not a repression. It's not a numbing out. It's just a... Here's my story, there's all the details of it. Let's just lift off from that and get an overview. So Viveka gives you perspective. Because you're not in the you're not in the story, you're witnessing the story. You're not in the emotion, you're witnessing the emotion. And as you so you get it, oh, this is this. You get able to get a a kind of 
an overview which is helpful because it gives you the, the basic understanding of the basic emotional or psychological thing that's happening that causes this story to rise up. I'm feeling frustrated, that's what it is. I'm feeling misunderstood, that's what it is. You know, so all the you, you, you get the the big picture. So that's Viveka, it gives you that. Dispassion is a, is a bit further along the line of that. It means having seen that and, and looked at that, um, you're also, you're okay with that. Like, oh, that's what that is. Because you, you recognize this experience is changeable. It's not self. It's not me, it's changeable. So it's coming and going. And there's, a, if you like, an emotional disengagement from that a little bit further so you know, this is this is the experience of anger it's like this there's a certain flooding uh, a rushing of energy through the body a heating up it's like this so you're still clearly aware of it you're perhaps even able to track it more finely because there isn't a further emotional uh, reverberation around it See, we might normally feel angry and then keep coming back to it and adding more pictures and more stories to it. Or, or I shouldn't feel angry, feeling guilty about it or justifying it. Whereas Viragra is just, oh, anger is like this. It's like this. So you're not adding more emotional, um, more emotional stuff to it. So that, that's the difference. Repression is very much a complete pushing down. Viragra is a lifting off to, in order to see things more clearly and to feel into things in an uninterrupted way without adding more to it. Highly recommended if you can get there. So we have Anapanasati. How do you interpret keeping sati parimukkang before attending to breathing? Some see this means placing awareness around the mouth. Others say keeping it in front, implying a more generalized awareness. So, yeah, the Pali, you see, mukha can mean face or mouth, or it can also be more metaphorical, means putting it to the fore. I mean, giving it the forefront of one's attention, place prioritizing it. So, pari is a general kind of emphatic, emph- emphasizing prefix. So, putting it thoroughly. So, I would interpret this as anapanasati. You, 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 you put it. You put the breathing thoroughly to the forefront of your attention. That's the way I understand it. Yeah. Rather than putting it in your mouth, which is possible but the word mukang and parimukang is used in in a variety of ways and that putting it to the fore is a very um, plausible translation which seems to work better in other words it's more metaphorical do you think jhana could be entered only with a visual nimitta or also a feeling nimitta jhana means the states of absorption uh, which are accompanied by a lessening of mental activity. Yeah. So the uh, first jhana is, means that there's a lessening or, a redu- or of discursive thought. Your mind isn't wandering all over the place. And these, what are called hindrances, 
stop. That is hindrance of ill will, hindrances of negativity or craving or dullness, uh, restlessness, um, skepticism or doubt, havering and wavering. All that stops. Discursive mental activity stops and you just have this sense of the mind placing and feeling the breathing and a sense of happiness uh, that comes with that. So this this is called the first jhana. For those of you who are not quite aware of that language, can be entered only with a visual nimitta or feeling nimitta. Nimitta means a sign. So sometimes uh, the way the mind operates is when we um, um, get something, you know, you, you, you see or you perceive something. It's the nature of perception. When you perceive something, there is a... Uh, we get a particular hit of it. You say, oh, he's got a friendly face. You know, so you say, friendly face. How's a face friendly? It's just a lump of meat on a load of bone, isn't it? <laughs> this is friendly. Yeah, friendly face. It means your take. So you get a sign. You know, it's beautiful. That's a sign. That's ugly. That's a sign. Uh, that's friendly. That's a sign. That's attractive. That's a sign. Disgusting. That's a sign. So you're, you're, you're perceptual. You're at your, which is this aspect of heart, makes a brief note, because the perception may be completely mistaken. Of course, you may not have a friendly face. You may have a friendly face, but a nasty heart. You never know. <laughs> uh, so it may be inaccurate, but that's your take on it, and that, then that. This is the bit you store. You don't do a detailed sketch of eyebrows, lobes of ears. You just go friendly face, and that is a friendly face. So that that's the bit you store, the percep- perception, which means, oh, the next time, oh, there's so and so with the friendly face. I remember him. He's the guy with the friendly face. She's the person with the friendly face. You know, it's old friendly face again. <laughs> <laughs> So this is what the mind does. It, it creates these brief shorthand signs, and these are called nimitters. Now in meditation, these nimitters, and I, and I was kind of suggesting it, when, you, when you're focusing there with the breathing, say, what, what is it like? Is it smooth? That would be a, that would be a nimitter. Is it bright? That would, be a, that would be the nimitter. In other words, what's your take on it? What's your take on it? Now as, as the mental discursive activity of thought dies down, these nimitters can become very strong, that you really get the feeling of a soft or a bright, the breath becomes a softness, a moving softness or a bright or silky or fiery or flowing like water. It's quite, it has this felt sense to it. And for some people, get it very visually, they get a visual nimitter, they see a light, you know, at a certain point they, they see some kind of light. Um, so that's possible. Other people will get um, a tactile nimitta. They get the fe- feeling of it. It feels soft. It feels like brushing. It feels like, or smoke. That, that would be a, a visual. But then you get the sense of the tactile. So it can occur in any of the, any of the sense bases. It can be based on any of the sense bases. But most generally, there are three, uh, what are called neurolingual pathways, which which the mind uses to describe to, for its perceptual vocabulary. And they're auditory, 
and tactile and visual. So we generally experience things as as um, it was silent, it was soft, it was brushing, it was that kind of sound to it, uh, or a silent silence or a tingly sound, or a felt of tactile, tingly experience, or a brilliant, bright experience. So these are these are the kind of things that people experience. They can be distractions also. If you start to go a little bit loopy on your nimitta, um, as you get fascinated by it and uh, think, wow, I've got something together, I've got a nimitta. So you start playing with it. Um, interesting enough, the Buddha, when he describes this process of jhana, doesn't mention any nimittas. <laughs> so it doesn't seem to be absolutely necessary. Or a sine qua non, in other words, inevitable. But you'll probably get something. Um, so the real sign of the real signs to look out for are the experience of uh, delight or happiness, piti, sort of joyful, fresh, bright feeling, and sukha, which is more like a warm, contented experience. So you know those are the limiters to look out for. These other ones can be useful for keeping the focus, but they might also you can have a hypnagogic effect, you know. So it's it's how you, how you handle it. Um, so the word nimitta in, in the canon is used quite broadly to describe. Um, like you say greed is a nimitta. So you put a greed sign on something, or lust or hatred. That's a nimitta, and um, the defining mark. And so the the Buddha said the defining mark of first jhana is. Uh, vitaka, vichara, piti, which is this joyful, delighted sense, and sukha, uh, contented sense, in which these enable, as they come together, enable the mind to settle. So, to speak it briefly, you may have nimitters, these visual nimitters, or you may not. Um, uh, the Buddha doesn't seem to mention it, so it, perhaps it's not essential. Um, quite a few people experience them, so if that they do that's fine um meanwhile be mindful stay with it and, and don't don't get uh, too um too nerve too worried about these things so this person's mind usually quite open and broad but what it gains in softness it tends to lose losing focus yeah that's that's one of the um, snags of soft softening. As you get get a little bit fuzzy, lose lose the focus. So as we soften, which really means uh, I use it to mean just slightly relaxing the you know, like slowing down or quietening the the this volitional activity or the pressure or the intensity. We just like you would say just sitting back a little bit, softening, resting back a little. You know not being too edgy, nervous, and, and tense. Um, so if you do that, then you've got to, uh, in order to keep the sharpness, you have to, along with that, listen more deeply. Again, it's a metaphor, attend more deeply. Perhaps use the quality of inquiry. Uh, like, what does this really feel like? How, would you descri- how do you describe it to yourself? So using vichara more, using that, sense of trying to really get it you know 
what's really happening. Um, so that, that then the sharpening comes not through pressure, but through uh, acuity, through, through alertness, through, um, uh, through really uh, get, getting the full sense of, of what's happening, and being able to know it to yourself. So vichara helps to, to give you the sharpness. Otherwise, there's softness. You can get just a little bit dreamy, dazed. Let's have a look more more technical stuff. Does intention include unconscious attention, i.e., all those habitual activities we do without deliberately willing them? There's quite a few things in there. Unconscious, unconscious attention. Unconscious attention. Mm. Unconscious attention. Oh yeah. Okay. Does intention include unconscious intention? Right. An unconscious intention, such as, what's an unconscious intention? Like habitual reactions without really knowing, really fully with what you're doing. So an, 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 uh, an action or a piece of mental behavior where there is some impulse, some recognition, and there's an action that occurs because of that, but you weren't really thinking about it or planning it. It just sort of happened by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, so the, the, the word intention here is a translation of the Pali word chitana, which means the, the impulse that arises from the heart. So the perception, say in your case, sticky hand, you know, and then the feeling dislike, and then want to do something about that. You didn't think it, but that was the, that was the thing. So, yeah, the, that's, that's, uh, that's an intention, and um, it uh, has, that's, you know, the, 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 the uh, result of it so it's karma. It's not particularly, it's not particularly heavy karma, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but it means as a result, it's an action that there's an action. You do something and you get a result from it, and it probably means that that particular piece of behaviour becomes more habituated. Yeah, that means that one tends to keep doing it. It becomes built in. Yeah, so it has that result, that result, that effect. Um, Now, for example, you see, say, another example, say somebody 
you hear this crashing around, middle of the night, my goodness, crashing around, what's that? And you jump out of bed, not, you know, and you sort of reach for the gun and before you know, shoot, shoot out the window or something. You don't even really know what you're doing. Uh, but still, there was enough there to know what a gun was and what and the shooting. So yeah, there's, that's karma. But it's, it's not as heavy karma as if it's broad daylight, you look at somebody, you think, I'm going to get that guy. So that's, you know, so this karma is, is graduated, you know, there's different degrees of, the degree to which one is consciously acting upon on a malicious impulse, then the result, of course, is in line with that. If you're acting in a state of carelessness, the result, still a result, because you, in a way you, you are habituating carelessness. Yeah. If you, you know, if you jump up in the middle of the night and you, you know you, you you grab something you don't know what it is and you, and it, you drop a brick on somebody's head, then the karma is isn't you know, the karma isn't you it's not killing somebody but being there's a you know so the karma is quite light. So it's not always measured in terms of the apparent result on the physical realm so much as what 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 it's doing to your mind. Yeah. So the results of karma are experienced in your own mind. You know, the ones that stay with you. Experienced in your own mind. So for example, if we think, well it doesn't really matter, I wasn't very attentive, so well what you're doing is you're legitimizing the act of being inattentive. <laughs> So that has a certain result. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so we say unconscious. Well, unconscious, you see, when the Buddhamic the, the analysis of it is there's no such thing as unconscious, there's just different levels of conscious. What we really mean is heedless or, or not really attentive. Yeah. You know, and you're not focusing on that, so it's a kind of. But I'm still conscious, but you know, I wasn't deliberately doing it. But there's still, when it's still conscious. Why do you say pay attention, but to what's arising, but don't try to understand it? Did I get that right? Isn't isn't that the second noble truth? To what to try to understand it. The second noble truth is, uh, let me think, what is the second noble truth? <laughs> okay. There is an origin to suffering. It is, it is this, uh, this craving that rushes hither and thither. That is the craving for senses, the craving for becoming, the craving for non-becoming. Mm. So that's the second noble truth. Third noble truth is it, it should be the thorough and dispassionate relinquishment of that. So, try, you see, so um, trying to understand it isn't one of the noble truths. There is, uh, in the elucidation of the, of the first noble truth, it says this dukkha should be understood, is to be understood. Dukkha is, has to be understood. That's the first point, and then uh, it has been understood. 
That's a, so, but so how do you understand it? Well, you meet it. You meet it as it arises. Sense it. Take it in. Then, you un- then the understanding comes as a result of meeting it correctly. Now if we meet it trying to understand it, we've actually jumped a little bit forward. You want to understand it before you fully met it. You see, so trying to isn't the same as understanding. So if you meet something with trying to understand it, you haven't, you've kind of jumped over the meeting place. The meeting place is first of all, what is this? And I'm not, there's a volitional pause, like I'm not moving away or going into it or even trying to fix it or release it, I'm just meeting it. And through that meeting, understanding arises. Does that make sense to you? Yeah? So, also, so paying attention Paying attention um, is that um, sense of being receptive to, attending to, and then talking about meeting what arises and widening and softening. Would this also apply to pleasant meditation experiences? For example, calm. So pay attention to what arises is first of all this sense of opening and being heedful. Fundamentally, that's upamada, which is uh, so the sense of you know taking note of what's arising, rather than just going with it, noting it, meeting it, is just that coming to a place where you're, you're aware without any particular angle on it. Um, widening and softening is. Uh, Almost uh, widening can be seen as both a widening of perception, that is, get a bigger picture of this whole thing. You know, you may f- feel certain details, but get the whole picture. Um, so you widen your your attention span. You, you, you focus on it. it mm, you could also say it m- may also mean widening your emotional capacity to receive it. So you, like we say, when you're somebody's open-hearted or broad-minded, it's like that, you know, not just having a quick uh, summary glance, but a, a wide understanding. So with that, we have to kind of, uh, in order to do that, you have to stop going forward. So the mind goes through various moves. One is to go forward. When the mind goes forward, it goes, oh, this and then that, and then this and then that, and that means this and that means that, and this is because of that. That's the mind jumping forward. Or the mind can jump backwards, can't it? Like, well, I didn't do that. I don't know about that. I'm getting out of here. So it jumps back. Or the mind can open, which is, hmm, what's this then? Hmm, how does this feel then? <laughs> well, 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 what's this about then? You know, so then it's not jumping forward or jumping back. It's, it's widening and opening. Hmm? And there's also like a, a certain bodily sense that goes along with it, a somatic sense, which is we we feel a little more spacious. So that's the widening experience. Would this also apply to pleasant meditation experiences? Yes. 
absolutely. Because when you when you experience a, uh, a skillful, pleasant experience in meditation, such as calm, or or your breathing your breathing experience becomes more steady, then the encouragement is to is to spread it. So. Um, the, in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha says, as you, you know, as you get more bonded to the breathing process, then thoroughly experiencing the entire body. So you may, breathing may be a kind of channel, and then you start to feel the wider effects of it flushing over the entire span of the body. So there's a widening there. And that means that when it's more deeply bonded, you know, because there's, you know, it's cover, it fills the entire mental um, space. And you take it in more deeply. And the idea of that for, for jhana, anyway, is to take more and more deeply because that's what jhana means, to absorb. So you take it in more fully and deeply. And, so, and taking in the pleasant, pleasantness and there's a strong encouragement in jhana practice to, to do that, to take in the pleasant quality, skillful, pleasant quality. Developing wisdom in a thorough, I guess, meditation practice and in our lives. <laughs> That's a big one, isn't it? Let <laughs> uh, me just put that one down for a moment. <laughs> See if there's anything that's more specifically point, pointed. Um, let's see anything technical here. Oh, here's another one about widening. Aside from using the sound of silence, quote unquote, can you give a bit more instruction on how to widen attention? Well, thing I just did actually sound of silence is um, um, particular nimitta that people use and it's uh, it comes through uh, like opening up the listening faculty essentially the listening faculty so as we when we listen so you're listening to me speak you can hear the sounds of these words um, the sound of my voice if you listen more widely you hear the sound and you hear the the silence is the pauses between the words. You know, you, and you, you're equally attentive to the sound and the silence. Mm. And you might also hear or sense particular emotional qualities I'm bringing up, whether it's encouraging or interested or whatever. So you, you get the whole thing and you widen and you include all of it. But you keep this sense of the listening itself becomes has a kind of uh, uh, has an attention to it that you because it's like you're opening up the neurolingual pathway of, of the hearing you can almost hear the hearing hear the listening which is a sort of fine whispery sound or subtle sound an inner sound it's not an outer sound it's an inner sound mm. I can, you can hear it now. I can hear it now anyway. So it comes from a, a very full, deep listening 
and it's primarily associated, particularly useful for thinking. And Ajahn Sumedho taught this a lot as a way of dealing with thinking mind. The thinking is going on and on and on. And rather than uh, fight with it, listen to it so deeply that you hear the listening. You see what I mean? You hear, you hear the, the energy of listening. There's a particular energy and the energy of listening has got, a, when you listen to it, it's got a particular kind of sound to it. So, because he listened to a lot, and um, things he wasn't particularly interested in. <laughs> so he doesn't do this when he's going to business meetings. <laughs> and people were going on about uh, the financial predicament, the auditing, the accounts, and he you know, just listen. So he'd listen to the listen to the words, but also listen so deeply he could hear the silence. And it was a way of 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 um, uh, by kind of you know keeping the sense of steady attention without getting lost in the thought process, and also when there's a lot of emotionally charged thoughts ranting through the mind, gibbering and ranting, and then you're either going to fight with them or shove them down or something like that. And you think, instead, you just listen to the silence behind the sounds, and eventually, as you listen to the silence behind the sounds, it's rather like the uh, your, your, your focus of attention just shifts to the silence and that takes the energy out of the thinking and the thinking starts to quieten down. So it's um, quite a skillful faculty. And that because of the hearing itself, if you contemplate the effect of listening, listening is always quite circular, isn't it? You know, it's, it's circular, it's global. When you see something, because you, both your eyes in the front of your head, it's very positional, you know, it tells me that you're, you know, six feet away, that's that distance. I can see all these objects. And in one sense, they're, they're all just objects in the same field, aren't they? But the eye is so balanced to say, oh, that's 12 feet away. That's not a little person sitting in front of me. That's a big man sitting 15 feet away from me. <laughs> He's not two inches high. <laughs> So, which is great because it's very confusing otherwise. <laughs> so it's very good at positioning, and it's, it's like that. It's that kind of linear quality. Whereas sound, you know, it's less. You can't. It's not so easy to sense whether something is a, a loud sound, a distance, or a, is that a fly buzzing on the window pane, or is it somebody mowing the lawn? You know, you just hear. So it's less directional, but it's also more circular. I can't see behind me, but I can hear behind me. So it's it, so it's a much wider, circular uh, kind of consciousness than the visual consciousness, which is very much in front and positional. So when you go into listening, it you do get a sense of like your head widens, feeling of that widening your head, uh, widening. That's quite good. But um, the but is that it doesn't necessarily, um, it's really to do with the head aspect and not so much the heart aspect or the body aspect. 
So you can also widen the attention through the body, which is to do with like a certain relaxing of the the nervous system. You know, so the, the nerve endings, the nervous energy in the body, if you relax it just like you were, say you're going to a bathtub of hot water, you're probably going to widen in that. <laughs> if you feel still kind of, oh. Or, or if, if somebody's coming at you with aggression, you feel yourself narrowing and tightening, hardening. You know, the pressure you tighten and harden. And then it's coming to you with affection and warmth, you soften and widen. That's what happens somatically. So all those are, are pieces that we can work with. Also, it's just the process of of being more broad-minded. You know, looking at looking at things from a little bit of detachment, disengagement, and seeing on the whole process rather than just the particular pointy bit. But you're seeing, you know, that particularly pointy bit in terms of a whole process of things. So there's a widening in the wisdom faculty, widening of wisdom. Okay. Get back to that. Okay, so we get down to some another kind of slightly more technical piece. So something about the emotions in the qigong movements. Well, qigong affects the the nervous system, and qigong and meditation both affect what's called the parasympathetic. Nervous system. So you have um, the voluntary nervous system, which is, you know, that which you say, "Oh, move my arm," and it does it. So that's the voluntary. You have the autonomous, which happens by itself, whether you decide to or not. So somebody makes a loud crash and you jump. You didn't decide to do it. It's involuntary. So it's called autonomous. And within that, there are two two systems. One is the sympathetic, which is that which immediately reacts. Involuntary jump, for example, is a sympathetic. It's sympathetic to what happens. Parasympathetic means more like something that overviews the whole system. Like, like So it's that which, okay, that was a shock and it felt like this and now how are we? Uh, it's all past now, it's settled down. <laughs> so it kind of overviews the rest of it. It's an overview that helps us to come back to integration again so you've been in a shock the state your nervous system is firing and then danger's over you're a bit shaky sit down shaky and then the parasympathetic system is going it's okay it's okay you feel your hands your feet you're okay breathing in breathing out it's all right calming down so it's it's that qigong and meditation ideally work on that they directly work on that sense of a global, not particular um, thing that's touching me, but a global sense of feeling calm, feeling steadied, rather than being activated by a particular object. So in that, in that quality of steadying and calming, um, which is what it does, certain emotions may be released, 
So we've been a little bit tense and, or withheld, and finally there's a dropping of that, and you get a sense perhaps of, oh, oh a little bit sad or relieved or something of that nature comes with that release from the emotional tension. And then what tends to arise is a sense of spaciousness or calm or we might say groundedness, that that kind of uh, experience happens. Okay, so let's go on to another one. Is a high libido, especially in a man, a sign of not applying oneself enough to one's practice or are different people endowed with different amounts of it? Or both, thank you. So what's a high libido? How high do you have to be? <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I mean, libido, the pleasure principle. So you can get libidinous about peanut butter sandwich. But <laughs> more specifically, it's generally generally people refer to the sexual or erotic principle. Yeah. So, sexual. If it's sexual, sexual, you know, energy high. Well, you know, it's difficult to measure, isn't it? So, if you're thinking about sex for more than twenty three hours a day, it probably does mean it's a bit, <laughs> a bit too high. <laughs> uh, and so. So you know, it can come, it can happen for you know the, the the sexual energy is is kind of gets switched on in in the early teens. So it starts the system starts to energize in that particular way, which is what it's supposed to do. In order we can go forth and multiply, um, otherwise we probably wouldn't bother. <laughs> <laughs> So it's this kind of energy, hormonal chemicals that that, uh, that uh, bring that that energy into play. So we feel this flushing, arousal of some kind. You know. mm. So that's just that's just what nature does. Mm. And so I don't. I think maybe the case that some people are more hormonally enriched than others, have a stronger libidinal tide than other people. That's quite possible, likely. Um, by itself, it's not really a sign of anything other than that one is kind of sexually mature. Mm. The uh, but naturally, with that comes all the the psychological uh, attitudes and the, the interest or the craving or the anxiety or the. Uh, teasing or playing with it you know so that that kind of there's a secondary uh you know level of, of things so one is just automatic and the other is something that is is the psychological additions that, that the mind makes around it for various reasons or non-reasons basically i suppose one very strong reason is just to be filled with the with the pleasure the pleasantness of that mm. so if one is is uh, uh, that's occurring a lot. It probably means one hasn't got much, getting enough pleasure out of meditation, in terms of or or other things. You know. Or you're getting very tense, tense and withdrawn and dry. So you want some surge of pleasure, and so that that is a easy 
flushing feeling that is got, generally got a pleasant, pleasant quality to it. Um, so famously, the Buddha said, "Yeah, you know, before when I was practicing, um, like that, I could just, you know, then that was the same for me until I experienced the pleasure of of meditation. The meditation was so pleasant and more satisfying way that the libidinal stuff just seemed a bit rough, really rough and harsh compared with the the, the extensive, satisfying pleasantness of." Of jhana, which is why I recommend well, one of the reasons why I recommended jhana because it, it transmutes or it transfers the the pleasure seeking principle to something that's got uh, going to be more beneficial, mm. Mm. yeah, more beneficial because it causes the mind to bond into an object skillfully. So, if, if as long as one isn't doesn't have the access to that jhana, then the libidinal drive is going to be um, a topic, an issue. Mm. If, it's, if it's coming up a lot, it can be that, uh, you know, renunciation, for example, puts a lot of pressure on the libidinal thing because you don't have all the various other forms of, of sense pleasures that are available. You can't go out for a dance, you can't have a pint, can't go play football other things that that give this kind of give you some pleasure so that all you know you're more or less stuck with uh, either your meal or your cup of tea or sugar and after all that you know you've had there's only so much of that so then the libidinal drive starts to create kinds of sexual desire and that which is extremely uncomfortable experience so sometimes it, the libidinal thing is arising because one doesn't have adequate pleasure from other sources. Sometimes it just so it, sometimes it comes because one is, is stressful. Sometimes it comes because of uh, psychological reasons. Um, you know, uh, one's feeling kind of weak or ineffective. So this sense of arousal, say in the male system anyway, makes you feel powerful as well as pleasant. It gives you a sort of powerful feeling. So you get the sense of being empowered. The testosterone gives you that kind of boom energy. Um, so if you're feeling a bit limp and flimsy, you might want a testosterone kick <laughs> again to, you know, ramp up your 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 Rambo status. Um, so these the, the so these various psychological as well as uh, uh, hedonic. Um, Things have to be met and, and, and assessed. You know, if one gets self-respect, then you don't need the testosterone high. You, you, you respect, you feel dignity, you feel steady in yourself, you feel, you know, so you don't need that kind of power affirmation. If you're getting enough pleasure from either jhana or from metta, kindness and compassion and companionship and friendship, then again the, the libidinal hunger tends to, tends to diminish. Uh, and if you have insight of course then it means you begin to see more clearly not just see but really experience well this stuff is suffering (laughs) you know you you don't really want it and uh, and you're you're able to also dismantle the various 
uh, projections and fantasies that go along with it. But that's that's the way down the road for most people. Just ignoring. Okay, I'll, I do feel I should try to respond to to what I can here. I think I'll leave wisdom and daily life such a large question that, with your permission, I'll I'll come back to that another time. But just um, a couple of other things. Experience a state where everything seems meaningless, especially metta. I don't know what it means. Have you any suggestions how to best work with this? Everything seems meaningless. Mm. Well, don't know what it means. So here, really, meaning here is felt meaning. Something means something. We all know, you know, we all know the word means this word and that word means this word. You know, metta means loving kindness, loving kindness is this, that, and the other. So you, you know literally what it means is an analysis of the word, but you're not getting it. You're not getting it, which means you don't get the, the felt sense of it. You don't get it. Because you don't get it, if you don't get the the feeling of it, then one doesn't know why it's a good thing. You, know, you may think it's a good thing, but you don't know it in your heart, in your guts, because you you're not experiencing it. Um, so, um, we've got to go from the concept, which is the word loving kindness or kindness, to the percept, which is the more direct experience more direct experience. Percept means it's, it gives you an image of something in your heart and it's always percept. Perceptions always have a feeling to them. So we might say with loving kindness uh, is there something where you, you, know, you see something and you, you get a little lights up like you see uh, your dog. You know. Your dog looks at you with those big brown eyes and you, something moves. So you, that, there's, there's a, that's what it means. It means that, that quality of affection and bonding that happens in sympathy with another being. You may have uh, experienced someone, you know, does something kind to you, pays off a debt, helps you when you're sick, um, lifts a weight for you, says a kind word, and you feel touched. And you oh, that's what it is. There's the quality coming to me. The first thing that we need to do is tune into what I call the primal sympathy and come out of our heads. You won't find meaning ultimately in the realm of concepts and ideas. You just find more translations. So you've got to come out of the head. The more you try to understand it, the less you get it. Because if you're just going into that head area, it's not going to provide any satisfactory answer because it can't give you a feeling. It's not about a feeling. You're going to go into the heart sense. Uh, This primal sympathy, as I said earlier, can be closed because of a number of things. I mentioned the war zone, I mentioned stress, uh, fear, um, psychological effects, whereby something the system has has decided or moved into closure because we don't want to feel, something doesn't want to feel. 
So, so you know, so we don't feel that. So, something doesn't want to feel moved. Doesn't want to feel. We don't want to feel. Then, if you're feeling that sense of it's meaningless, meaningless. Now, when I take that and I think it through, meaningless, meaningless, and I get, a, I just feel sad. I feel sad for you. So then what arises is a sense of compassion. It's easier with another person. It's more difficult. You know, when I feel, if I feel life is meaningless, sometimes I need somebody else to say, oh, that, that sounds tough. And then perhaps I get the sympathy. My own heart goes, oh yeah, it is tough. Mm-hmm. So, when something is meaningless, meaningless, how does that feel? Hmm. What would it be like, we say, what would it be like to be given to be someone express their gratitude to be given space to be allowed all the time in the world to be how I am what would that feel like so first we may begin to just sense what it's like to experience another person or other people's genuine benevolence intention towards us and letting yourself be touched by it not having to deserve it, not having to pay it back, not having to say thank you, but just receiving it. That's perhaps where it starts. You start where you can. I understand the Buddha taught the fetter and the release regarding all the spiritual faculties, even including mindfulness. Can you explain how this can apply to mindfulness? The release. Yeah, I think this is in the Bojanga Sangyutta, the, the Pali Canon. Mm. Actually, I'm still feeling the result of the last question, so, so I think I'll put that aside for now. It seems a bit, you know, compared with real life. So why don't we just, I'll try to deal with some of these things at a later time. It's been a uh, long evening. So why don't we pause now. And those of you like to continue practicing the hall, then please do so. If you like to retire or go walking, then... um, Go ahead.